Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I hope everybody's uh, doing great getting into September. Bruce and I took a couple of weeks off for uh, rest and rehabilitation. I think we're back and ready to go. Bruce, how you doing? I'm great. I'm great there, Jeff. How are you? All right. I'm great, too. Thank you very much. All right, we got uh, we have a couple of great uh, episodes. We're going to look at the uh, the a little bit of the markets and the economy with Jim Paulson of the Luthold Group, and then we're going to have uh, our own Mark Sheffy on to talk to us about some things in the regulatory world. I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, AIX Alternative Investment Exchange. Thank you very much for them. Uh, now to Jim Paulson. Jim is the chief investment strategist at the of the Luthold Group. He is a member of the Investment Committee, authors Market and Economic Commentary, and works with the Luthold Investment Team in serving institutional financial advisor and investment professional clients. Jim has been in, an, in the investment industry since 1983, most recently with as Chief Investment Strategist at Wells Capital Management, where he worked for 20 years. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, thanks for being here. I Bruce, uh, Bruce has got the first question. Kick it off, Bruce. Hey, Jim, how you doing? <clears throat> I'm doing good, Bruce. Thanks for taking a couple of minutes and dropping by the podcast. You and I have known each yeah. other, gosh, for a long time, right? Too many years. <laughs> Way too many years. <laughs> but one of the things I, I like most about Jim is that he is a markets guy and a bit like a big economic charts guy and all that kind of stuff. And he has this great weekly newsletter or a couple of times a week, whenever the newsletter comes out, Jim, I think you kind of put it out when you think something should be written about. Um, and right. you really write clearly and concisely. So uh, even though I'm a financial journalist, I'm not a, a, I'm not an economics major or anything like that. I'm just, a, I'm a journalist, you know, and, and you write things in a clear and concise manner that, that I think that somebody with a little bit of knowledge in the markets can kind of understand. Well, sometimes I'm not even sure I understand it all, Bruce. So we're uh, the readers are probably in fine shape. <laughs> I would be I would be surprised if you said that you did understand everything, considering what we've been through in the past twenty years, right? Yeah. But one of the ideas that has that you've uh, kind of illustrated over the years, or one of the arguments I think that you have, or debates rather, with people in the industry, is the historic valuation of the S and P five hundred and how we should look at that. So we're going to talk to you more about the economy in a little bit, but this is why I wanted to get you on the podcast is because the, I think the question that many investors have is right now about the market at these markets are at the, the Dow and the S&P are at historic highs and the like, even though they're down a little bit the past few days, is the market overvalued? Is it fully valued, et cetera? And people always trot out all these historic numbers saying, well, the S&P mean is this, and so it's more than the S&P price-to-earnings ratio is, is X, and now it's Y, and so this isn't a good time to invest or something like that. But you kind of have a little different take on that, right? Yeah, I do. Could you, could you talk about that just a little bit and kind of give us a little bit of context of where your, your idea for the valuation of the S&P 500 came from and then, and then how it's evolved? Yeah. Well, I, I think that I think Bruce, I would argue that valuation has probably been the primary concern among most investors for much of the last three decades. It seems like the market's always above average valuation, always kind of too highly valued. 
certainly is today. And that's certainly a concern among much, much of Wall Street and just investors in general. But what's interesting, what I find most interesting is the data on valuation for U.S. stock markets goes back to 1870. And one of the persons <coughs> that brought That's this, a long time. It's a long time, you bet. And one of the persons that brought this to Limelight was uh, Robert Schiller. The Schiller right. Cape PE multiple is a celebrated valuation technique. And what's interesting to me, when you look at that, that particular metric, or just look at the trailing PE multiple in the S&P 500 goes back to the 1920s, you'll find that there was a very consistent valuation range from 1870 to basically 1989, a range of anywhere from a roughly you know six times earnings in the low end to the low 20s on the high end, and an average probably around 14 times earnings very consistent whether you looked at the Schiller Cape or whether you looked at the trailing P multiple. And it lasted, you know, 130 years, very consistent range. And then suddenly, starting about in 1990, it went higher than that. And it's never looked back. It's been perpetually above that old range for three decades right now. Just to give you an idea. And PE stands for just for a layman. You bet. The the price price to earnings. Price to earnings. Right? So it, a common thing is the price to trailing 12-month earnings level. Right. So, and, you know, historically, an average of around 14, if it was below that, it'd be below average, and above that, it'd be above. That's really been different. Uh, just to give you a, an idea that really between 1900 to, to 1990, the a- average trailing price earnings multiple on the U.S. stock market Average ranged on a 30 year moving rolling average, averaged around 14 times, went down as low as a little over 12, as high as 15. Today, it, the highest ever 30 year trailing P multiple in the history of the US stock market is where we are today. The average multiples 1990 is 20.5 times earnings right now. That's right. that's average. I, in my, where I grew up starting in 1983, that would have been. You know the the upper upper limit of of uh, values, and you'd sell if you ever saw a twenty multiple in the overall market. So right. it's just so different. The Cape Schiller PE multiple. I'll just give you that sense that uh, Bruce that since nineteen ninety, it's been b- above average of what it used to be from eighteen seventy to nineteen ninety. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's been above average. It's <laughs> it's been a, it's been above the ninetieth percentile. 79% of the time. Currently, it's close to the 100th percentile. And so my whole thing with, with valuation is I think we're clearly in a new valuation range. It's lasted for three decades. It wasn't just because of dot-com. It, it's been around now for three decades running. You know, Most of people's careers has been in a new uh, higher valuation range. So to, right. so to use data from 130 years ago, to say, you know, to keep yourself out of the market, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. And so what changed? What was the watermark of, of 1989? Yeah. Well, just I just get there's no one really knows why we're doing this. And in fact, a lot of <laughs> a lot of great investors, you know, have been underallocated the stock market for a long time, primarily because of this. And I get that. I'm an old dog myself. And you know, just to give you a perspective on this, when I started in the business in 19 early 83. I developed a rule of thumb, which typically all investors develop some sort of rule of thumb. And my rule of thumb was I wouldn't look at any stock if it had a double digit multiple. 
<laughs> I only looked at right. the stocks with a single digit P multiple and there was a lot of them around a lot of choice. And of course I had to give up that rule of thumb. So I understand that, but there's, there's really good reasons to suspect a, why valuations are higher today and have been now for three decades than they used to be. I'll just give you a, a, a few of those. Okay. The first one is just the cyclical composition of the economy. The economy has become much less cyclical. Prior to World War II, really, or 1950, if I looked at the percent of the economy comprised, percent of GDP comprised by goods and structures, kind of cyclical activities, that was typically around 60% of the economy. Today, if I look at it, it's around 35% of the economy. So in cyclicality terms, the economy is you know, half as cyclical as it used to be up until 1950, for example, just a huge change. And just like if all stocks we looked at were auto manufacturers and home builders, we wouldn't pay near the, as high a price earnings model for that very cyclical earning that could recess tomorrow. But we don't have that. We have more companies that aren't nearly as cyclical anymore because the economy isn't as cyclical. Another way to look at this frequency of recessions, if you go up to about, again, 1950, we had recession almost half the time prior to World War II in this country. In the last 30 years, we've had recession less than 10% of the time. And if you don't, you know, if, you, if we never had recessions, we could all afford to pay a higher valuation on stocks. Uh, there just wouldn't be much risk. And, and we're having far fewer recessions than we ever used to have. Inflation stability. If I look back at the frequency by which the consumer price inflation rate used to be above 3% or below zero, we actually had deflation or inflation above three. That used to run rather regularly up until about 1950, again, above 70% of the time. We either had pretty rapid inflation or deflation. In the last you know, 30 years, we've had inflation above three or, or below zero less than 40% of the time. So again, inflation is much more stable and low, but recessions are much less current, cyclicality of the economy is much less. Then you look at the composition of the S&P 500 itself, and these are a little outdated, but if I go back to 1990, even at the start of that 30-year period, tech and healthcare made up about less than 17% of the S&P 500. And cyclical sectors like industrials, materials, and energy made up almost 35% of the index. In 2017, I just haven't updated this particular study since then, growth in tech now makes up at that point 30, almost 38%, and industrials, materials, and energy make up less than 20%. So the market itself has become more growth-oriented, less cyclical. And we all know that growth stocks get higher PE multiples than cyclical stocks. So what's your message then to your clients, Jim, when you talk to institutions and you talk to financial, big financial advisory firms, right? Right. When you're talking to these guys and, and, and they say, Jim, help me out. You know, the, the market's at an all time high here. I <laughs> yeah. have to I have to get out of it or I have to decrease my, you know, my allocation to equities right. tremendously. What do you what do you say? Well, I, I think I think what I, I what I've been doing more so is use the range that's been around in the last 30 years rather than values before that time. And as I said, the, the current average valuation on that basis is 20 times earnings right now. So 
I, I'm, I've been also, I think it's important to reduce the weighting you put on valuations, Bruce, compared to other factors you're looking at. I mean, if you have policy officials that are easing, if you, if you know you're early in a recovery and just recovering from that, if you know you have ample capacity to grow in the economy and recover yet, if you know earnings are still early in recovery, if you know that investors are under-owned in stocks, if other factors maybe should take on more weight in your overall allocation decision than just the valuation used to take up. Not that you should ignore it. I don't think you should. You should have maybe different parameters and a little less weight attached to it and more weight attached to other things. That's how I'm approaching. Just to give you one example, one of the things that's happened is since 1990 is bull markets have grown in to their valuations. That is, Rather than when the market goes up in a bull, it becomes more expensive. What typically has happened is as the market's gone up, it's become less expensive because earnings start to recover and they start to recover faster than the stock market is. So take our example in the current bull. Certainly the stock market went up a lot faster than earnings did from March of 2020, maybe up through March of this year for the first year of the bull. And as a result, when stock market went up and earnings didn't recover, the, the PE multiple went way up over 30 times earnings, almost 32 times earnings, ridiculously high levels. But what's happened since? The stock markets continue to go up, but earnings have gone up a lot faster. So already now, on a trailing 12-month earnings basis, even though the stock market's near 4,500 on the S&P, its multiple has actually come down from 32 times earnings to about 26 times earnings. And I think earnings are going to be about $220 trailing for quarter at the end of this year. And if the market's around where it is right now, we're going to be going into next year at about 20 times earnings, which is, right. which is about average. Suddenly, all these articles and, and consternation over a market, which is ridiculously overpriced, are going to go away. Because suddenly, <laughs> suddenly the market's going to look... A much better value, even though it's still just as high or higher than it was when people were worried about valuation. And that's right. that's not uncommon. That happened in the early 90s. It happened after the dot-com crash. It happened in 2009. That same sort of phenomena of the market got cheaper as it went up. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fascinating. I, I remember seeing you and being in the newsroom and seeing you on CNBC and arguing with uh, there are different broadcasters and the like about, about the length of the uh, of, of the market there, you know, and you were right. But Jeff has a couple of questions here for you, too. Jim, where where do you see uh, the market being overvalued, if not now? And I, I, I certainly uh, it's an eye opener to look at it that way over the past 30 years where the uh, the P.E.s have been elevated. But um, I mean, you you must have sensed something in the dot-com bubble leading up to the financial crisis in terms of valuations. What, what do you see in this well, market? What I'm, I, I guess what I'm saying right now is we certainly could have a correction at any moment. We're going to get a correction. We're not going to have a bull without correction. So expect that. And typically, those are hard to predict, man, I think. You know, sometimes I've done it over years. Sometimes I hit them right. I look like a genius. Sometimes I miss them. You know, <laughs> I, I, I try to pay more attention on where is the recession ending foot bear mark? Where's that? That's even hard enough. But I may tilt a little bit away when I think a correction's coming. I'll, 
I'll try to do that. And as I say, sometimes with mixed success. So I guess what I look at right now is, is even though the time for correction is here, usually you have a first, after you're the first year of a bowl, you have a correction. And, and as you know, it's been one of the longest periods without one. And so it wouldn't be surprising to get one. But here's the problem. We don't have hardly any of the characteristics that generally lead to a correction right now. Normally, you get a correction after bond yields have gone way up, after short interest rates have gone up, after the Fed has been tightening, after fiscal authorities have stopped the fiscal juice, started raising taxes and cutting spending, after people are really worried mm-hmm. about inflation, it's just, just all over concern on, on that. And, and usually when valuations have been rising and have been stretching rather than getting better. So I, I do think we're going to get one, but it might be after some of those pressures start to emerge, which we could get very quickly. I personally think bond yields are going to go up before the end of the year. I think inflation fears are going to come back mightily strong yet. I think the Fed will start tapering and then maybe the pressure will be time for a correction. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't right now most of those things that you just listed, aren't they all kind of artificially in place with you know yields being low, people pushing money into the market? And the inflation thing, that seems to be pretty intense from where I'm sitting. You don't think the concerns are as high as they, I, I, they've been in a while? Uh, no, I mean, and I know what you're saying. There's certainly concern about inflation. I have myself. But but let's face it, there wasn't. There's not near the intensity today that there was in March when bond yields were pushing through 180, headed to two. Then there was inflation mm-hmm. fear among investors. Today, bond market and the stock market both feel pretty, you know, seem pretty tame about the whole thing. I mean, I know the media headlines mm-hmm. are full, and I know we pay more at the gas pump, and I know, you know, it's true. That's all true, but I don't see that concern really in the financial markets at the moment. Not that I'm not saying it could come back. To me, there's two different things here too. There is, could there be a correction in the forces for that? And yeah, we're going to get one. I don't quite see that. The other question is, how close are we to the end of the bull? You know, we could have a correction and that doesn't mean the bulls are You know, we still, we still have an unemployment rate that's 5.2% on the narrowest definition. And if you assume there's going to be some labor force growth again, as people re-enter the labor force, which we might start to get a feel for here soon as these benefits run out and people come back into the job market. I think the unemployment rate is well over 7% yet. And historically, the stock market doesn't end its bull run until you get unemployment rates below 4%. We're not there. You know, mm-hmm. we, they never end until there's some policy tightening put in place. And we haven't even started that yet. We have, as a result of this pandemic and really building in recent years, incredibly strong balance sheets particularly in the household sector. The debt-to-income ratio in the household sector has fallen to a level we haven't seen since 1995. And debt-service ratios in the household sector are the lowest on record, at least dating back to 1980, in part because rates are so low. Cash flow is immense in every pocket of private sector America, whether it's corporations or or individuals. Investors are holding on to $4.5 trillion of money market funds, even though they're getting zero returns on them. Because there's fear. Okay. That's a lot of buying yeah, but, power. Yeah, that, and stocks are, are, are up a lot, but relative to bonds, they haven't gone anywhere for 20 years. So I still think, I still think we're a ways away from the end of the bull, even though we could have a nasty 15 plus percent correction at some point 
which will be frightening and scary and and irritating in the, yeah. the whole works. Well, that's to me the thing that has been kind of boggling my mind for the past, really since this pandemic thing started. There's all these things that, you know, on paper look like, yeah, this market is strong. The economy is is at least present, but it just seems like there this this market, the stock market is resilient to the the bad news or the things that look really, really scary, like a global pandemic, all hell breaking loose in Afghanistan, threats of inflation, a three point five trillion dollar budget being batted around in Washington. <laughs> yeah. I just don't I, get well, it. I just it, it just the market just, space. I'll just draw the in, in my book, you know, we have had a really crappy, you know, last couple decades in the economy. The average real GDP growth rate in the last 20 years has been about 1.7% per annum on average. That is the lowest ever in post-war history, and I think the lowest maybe since the Great Depression. The worst 20-year growth rate in real GDP. It's been a crappy economy for so long. And when you have growth, think of the last recovery we had after the 08 crisis. Growth averaged a little over 2% in real GDP during that recovery, and it rarely touched even 3%. Well, when you have growth that sluggish, every little problem that arises becomes a major, major risk. Because when you're growing that slowly, just a little bit of a problem can knock you right back into a recession. And we've gotten used to that as investors. Uh-oh, China's China trade problem. Oop, that, that's, that could be it. And every little issue that comes up. But today, man, we're doing nothing like that. We are growing at some of the fastest rates in post-war history, year on year and quarter by quarter. Even if we're slowing down a little with Delta, we're still growing faster than we have probably in 30, 40 years. And so when you're growing that fast, you can have a lot of issues, particularly when the long-term cost of capital is 1.3%. And it just isn't going to have the same impact that it used to have in the last couple of decades. Right. Jim, you mentioned a couple of things that are, I guess, potential risks mm -hmm. or maybe drags on this. Uh, potential tapering, that's one of them. I, I, are these things that you see as something that could that could disrupt the bull market or, I mean, this stuff has to be done, doesn't it? I mean, they have to step, the, the Fed has well, to taper, yeah, me, don't they? I, there is, to me, there's one major risk to the bull and that's inflation. And it could, it, it's yet to be seen whether this inflation we're experiencing is indeed transitory or it's more systemic. And we won't know that uh -huh. probably not until the end of next year, to tell you the truth. I. I still lean towards the view that there are strong secular disinflationary forces that will win out. And we went from a bust boom cycle in the pandemic that we bigger than ever in post-war history. We went from minus 10% GDP to plus 12 in a year. And when you do that, you had all of our suppliers in, in the world prepare of how to survive their company through a pandemic. And they did that by cutting operations to the bone. And then within a matter of months, you gave them a post-war boom. And so we have a huge demand supply imbalance, which I think will work itself out. But I'm not positive. And if it doesn't, and, mm -hmm. the, and the quantitative easing and massive fiscal, I call uh, abuse and overuse of economic policies 
if, if that creates a runaway inflation like the 70s, then we've got a disaster in both the stock and bond markets, no doubt about it. So the risk is extraordinarily high, okay, as far as the outcome. But the risk of that, but the occurrence of that happening, I think, is still fairly remote. That to me is the biggest risk. Tapering, the interesting thing I find on tapering is it's already happening. And people are not even talking about it. The, the annual rate of M2 money growth peaked out in February year on year at 26%. It's now down to 12. The year on year growth in quantitative easing peaked out in February at 80%, and it's now down to 15%. We've already had the vast majority of tapering and quantitative of monetary conditions we're, we're going to have. Will it taper a little further? Yeah, but the worst part's already occurred. And, and it's had an impact, to your point, because since February, since March, what has happened? Everything's changed in the financial markets. Bond yields stopped going up. They peaked out. Commodity prices haven't been moving sideways rather than up. Cyclicals and small caps stopped outperforming, and we went back to growth stocks that were outperforming. All of that, I think, is a result of tapering. The Fed has done nothing, but by buying the same amount every month, the base has gotten bigger and bigger, so the rate of growth has slowed tremendously already. By the time they, they announce an official tapering, the tapering may be largely over. I know. I, I call that a trick of math, the way you just explained it. But I know what you're saying. It's it's smaller because the base is bigger. But there has to be actual tapering because it doesn't it seems like this whole thing is being propped up by by the Fed buying. But well, that's a conversation for a different time. I, um, <laughs> yeah, I would argue that the fundamentals have just been fantastic. Earnings, earnings, uh -huh. the earnings recovery is not a figment of our imaginations. The, the recovery in jobs is not a True. figment. The recovery in real output is not a figment. The recovery in home building, is, I mean, that is real stuff. <laughs> it's not because of right. QE. <laughs> well, I'm not convinced about the recovery in jobs, not when businesses are closing down because they can't find people to work. And they're, you know, once, well, I'll be convinced of that when I see what happens after a couple of months of, of, uh, the unemployment uh, money getting tapered. That's what kind of would need to be tapered. Yeah. But the, the fixed income, I'm going to talk to you just briefly about the fixed sure. income markets. Uh, I just finished a, a big story that'll come out on, on Monday, the same day this podcast publishes. And uh, looking at the, the traditional 60-40 portfolio, which from everything I can tell, it's 70-30 now and maybe forever. People are having a hard time justifying fixed income allocations. And I think that's a large part of the reason there's so much money in cash. What, what's your thinking on fixed income? If you're talking to a financial advisor or even just a regular investor, uh, how do you justify a 40 or even 30% allocation to fixed income? And if you do, where do you put that money? Well, first off, I just I'd say that the 10-year bond yield in this country being, uh, has been below the median consumer price inflation rate since 2012, 70% of the time. So we're in that position today, but it is certainly not unique to 2020 and beyond. We were in that position in 2012 and 13. We're in that position 2015 to 2018. So I don't know, number one, if the bond market's nearly as mispriced as people give it credit for. And yeah, I, so that's my first point. I, I don't think it's clearly out of whack. I think bond players still have heavy influence on where they want to price bonds. 
and at the margin, and they are pricing bonds where they want to price bonds. And I, 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 I don't think it's because when the Fed gets done buying QE that bond yields are going to soar necessarily. I don't buy that. But to your point, I think the bond yields are headed up, and I think they're going to head up towards two percent, maybe back to one eighty this year, and and maybe up to two and a half next year or thereabouts, and probably will peak out three to four percent before the cycle ends. So. I totally concur with you that high quality bonds, I think, are are just no longer a viable asset. I really don't think they are. The only reason that we own them and buy them is because we've always owned them and bought them. And I think most people own them just because they that's what's always been done. I don't think they make a lot of sense. Now, lesser quality bonds still have some merit, but not great. And Optionality bonds like mortgages and the like also offer some, but not great munis similarly. But even that entire complex, I think, is is verging on the point of being a non-viable asset. What I think people should do is move away, uh, keep some bonds, but if you want to say the 60-40 or 70-30 or 80-20, one thing I'd be is I'd be close to minimum bond exposure, whatever that is for your parameters. If it's 80-20, then I'd be 80% stocks and other things. And mm-hmm. the 20, even the 20, I'd look for alternative ways to do that. And I, I might use optionalities like covered call positions. If, if you do a covered call in NASDAQ 100, for example, there's an ETF available for that. It has a character that's pretty comparable to what you'd have in, in, in junk bonds right now but it has a different driver. It doesn't have credit as the driver. And I think having a little bit of that in there or other optionality sort of things in replacing high quality bonds makes a lot of a lot of sense. So I would have minimum and certainly almost virtually none in, in quality. That's a, I was not expecting that answer. Fascinating. I, I got to tell you, um, what happens, Jim, if everybody kind of subscri- subscribes to that mentality? And I think people are already trimming their bond exposure and, and seeing that as a long-term play. The bond market's like, isn't it like five times the size of the equity market? What happens if people just, you know, trim their, their bond exposure down that low? That, that has to drive yields higher, right? The bond, the, you know, companies can't survive without, without the bond well, market. I, I think that first thing is the company has got a lot more buffer today than they've maybe ever had simply because they have uh, tons of liquid assets or floated bonds now at very low rates and have uh, big buffers for capital spending programs and and stock buybacks and dividend payments. One of the reasons we're seeing so much of that is because they got such a buffer and so do households. So one of the things to think about is rates could go up a fair amount and there's not a great need for the capital right now. You know, it's basically our, Again, abuse and overuse of policies is the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. It's like, you know, the dog needs a drink in the backyard. And rather than filling his bowl, you just turn on the fire hose and aim it at his mouth. Most of it just doesn't even get in the dog. It just flushes around on the ground. And that's what we got in the economy that's just got tons of this stuff everywhere, which means that if rates go up, not a lot of people are going to notice because they're. it's not like it was 30 years ago when everyone was over indebted and on Biker's Edge. Right. We're, not, we're not close to that. So. I, I, I think I, I think that's one piece of, piece of it. But yeah, I think rates are going to go up. You know, and I, I think, as I say, I think it could get up three to four percent by the terminal end of the cycle, maybe if we don't have runaway inflation. 
The other thing to think about is, I don't know if I see that yet. I still see a regular flow into bond funds every week, even though there's some flow into stock funds now, but there's not like they're coming out of bond funds. That's not happening. People, I think it reflects, people are still scared. Everyone's waiting for this correction. We all know it's going to happen. And now we're in September and October, and so they're holding on to bonds. And if you look at the rest of the world, they're looking at the highest yields anywhere in the world yet available in the United States. <laughs> that, well, that's the thing. If if people are, if the trend is toward less fixed income in a in a, any kind of a whatever a balanced portfolio looks right. like these days, that does add volatility. Then you've got a whole different situation. It's okay to to be eighty percent in stocks now and for the past twenty years, I guess, mm, or maybe yeah. ten years. But but what what happens? When we do get that 15% correction and people are, because they're 80% exposed to the stock market, feeling the well, brunt of it. I don't think they are 80% exposed. That, That's just that I, they're not there today. I mean, I, I, don't think there's any, I don't think they're anywhere close to that because they're, they're still amply scared about the stock market. Again, I just come back to there's behavioral things. If you look at the ratio of low vol, excuse me, look at the ratio of, of high beta to low vol investing. It still remains much low, lower to a 30-year low. It's nowhere close to where it was at the dot-com top, for example. Um, they're contra opposites. If I look at gold relative to other commodity prices, it's still close to a 50-year mm -hmm. high today relative to other commodities. If, if I look at $4.5 trillion of money funds, which is almost a record high being held today in money market funds overall, and then I just look at the weekly flow in the you know, ETF and mutual fund flows into bonds versus stocks, there's still just a cavernous wide difference between those two. And so I, I don't sense there's just over the top optimism driving people totally in the stock market. I, I just, I don't see that. Not yet. You know, I still think there's quite a few people in bonds. What I worry more about, Jeff, is I do think rates are going to go above 2% in the next year from a 130 base tonight and if they if it does that you're going to you're going to you're going to have a lot of investors that are going to feel that 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 to me is where the risk could come in is not people sitting in stocks so much but people sitting in bonds when the the rates double on their on their 10 year quality bond that's yeah. and, and I don't know what that'll do exactly but it, it you know I think we're going to face it all right, good stuff. Really interesting uh, conversation. Well, you know, yeah, I, I love I all that paradigm. You're you're talking paradigm shifts, Jim, to use a catchphrase. I think but with the S and P 500 and bond allocations and 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 the like. So I just, I guess that's one of the reasons why I I enjoy reading your research so much. And um, I guess people can get your stuff on your website, right? Yeah, they can. Uh, yeah, they can go to uh, loopholdgroup.com and. Uh, Check it out. You know, I, I it is paradigm, but you just think about the world we're in right now, too, Bruce, of unbelievable and negative yields in the world and unbelievable abuse and overuse of policies across the globe and and the Federal Reserve getting into broader mandates beyond inflation and unemployment into climate, you know, change and other other things that normally left to our politicians and having evaluations that are way out of bounds by historical norms. 
bringing in a whole new breed of young investors into the marketplace uh, in a way that just hasn't happened before. The use of technology and investing, just there's a lot of paradigm shifts. Let's just face it. Yeah, it's all fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, too. It is. And that's why we need guys like Jim Paulson to help us uh, uh, think about it clearly. So, hey, Jim, I want to ask yeah. you one more thing. For a while there, I was getting these green books yep. in the mail, all your deep research. That's and, not mine, uh, actually. But that's oh, it's not. No, that's I, I do have my own piece that goes out Paulson Perspectives. And that that's uh, that's Luthold Green Book goes out every month. Yeah. OK. Yep. Is that, we, does that that I mean, I don't know who's in charge. Of of putting those. A, OK, yep. we have both of those. I just don't participate in the green book. All right. Cause the, uh, I got to tell you much of the stuff in the green book went way over my head, <laughs> but I could always find the, uh, the section in the middle with the jokes. There's like <laughs> yeah. four or five pages of jokes in the middle and some of the best jokes you ever, you know, good they stuff are. there. That I, goes I mean, way <laughs> back to Steve Luthel long before I've ever been here. Steve would start that years and years ago. And uh, we got guys in the shop to keep that up and, it is good. I, I appreciate yeah. the creativity uh, there. A, a lot of uh, a lot of making fun of the uh, the Minnesotans. Uh, a lot of <laughs> We're the, easy the, targets. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff there. Really fun. Thanks for thanks for coming on the the program. Good stuff well, and like well, you bet you bet. I appreciate the invite, guys. And I I always enjoyed Bruce over the years. So uh, it's fun to reconnect in this way with him again. So thanks so much, you guys. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> You bet. Imagine a place where investing in alternatives is as simple as buying an ETF or mutual fund. The folks at AIX imagined such a place, but they didn't stop there. They built it. AIX is a digital platform that completely reinvents how we buy, own, and sell alternatives. With AIX, you can easily track the progress of each investment, extract critical learnings, and confidently participate in the rapidly growing alts marketplace. By replacing the paper-based process with a point-and-click experience, AIX streamlines the investing process for all involved. From wealth managers and asset managers to custodians, transfer agents, fund administrators, AIX ensures everyone is connected, helping to enhance the transparency, mitigate risk, and stop errors before they start. It's a whole new world of alternatives, one where the entire alts industry can continue to grow and thrive. AIX, enter an alternatives universe. Visit AIXplatform.com to learn more. All right, we're uh, back with Mark Sheff, our intrepid Washington, D.C. reporter, or as we like to call him, the Swami in the Swamp. Bringing us the latest here, uh, big move, Barbara Roper, one of uh, Mark's loyal sources of the recent past, has moved, I guess, moved to the uh, the SEC as a senior advisor. I don't know what this means, but I'm sure Mark does. It it, it seems like, I don't know, I, to me, it was looked like she was always a burr under the saddle of the SEC and they hired her just to quiet her up. But uh, Mark, uh, <laughs> I know you have a, have a different take on that. You think that she's going to she's going to force. Uh, you know, a wave of regulations, right? Yeah, yeah. Mark, just talk about what Barbara was doing before until she got hired, and then how did she get hired by the SEC and all that kind of stuff? Who, who, who is she, basically? Sure. Well, hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. Actually, this is the first time you've ever called me the Swami in the Swamp, but I like it. 
I, I, I think I'll adopt that. Maybe I'll put that on a T-shirt. Yeah, I was thinking we got to have T-shirts. That's definitely a T-shirt. All right. <laughs> exactly. Barb Roper was appointed to SEC Chairman Gary Gensler's senior staff while I was at the beach, actually. Uh, this this announcement uh, came over my phone, and my first reaction was, darn, I, I've lost one of my best sources. Barb uh, had been at the uh, Consumer Federation for, of America for 35 years. She was the director of investor protection there. And she was authoritative about all uh, issues under the sun that affected uh, investment advisor and broker regulation, especially those pertaining to uh, the delivery of advice and, and fiduciary duty. And she was, uh, after, as I said, after decades of being effective at pressuring the SEC from the outside, she is suddenly an insider there. So what she'll be doing at the SEC is advising Gensler on uh, issues related to retail investor protection, such as regulation best interests, the broker advice standard, and um, form CRS, the new disclosure document that was part of the Reg BI package, and all kinds of other investor protection uh, issues that that will range from uh, opening private markets or not opening them to uh, retail invest investors to um, issues surrounding online um, so-called gamification and and uh, digital outreach to retail investors and and so on. So Barb is uh, Barb will get a chance to uh, play the regulatory game from the inside. Yeah, I think what was interesting, and in, 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 I read your column, and I encourage our listeners to check out Mark's column on this uh, this move. But uh, you mentioned that is, she immediately became unavailable for comment as a as a part of the SEC. So those of you who are listeners are who are not reporters, that's what it's like working with the SEC. That's uh, your tax dollars at work, right there. <laughs> right, Barb had been someone who I just picked up the phone and and could get on the line either immediately or, or very soon. And as I said, when I, uh, I, I, when I came off the beach that day, of course, I reached out to Barb and congratulated her uh, on, on um, this new position and, and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you about it. She said, well, I'm not quite sure about the, uh, the rules now, but you'll have to um, contact the SEC Public Affairs Office, which I did. Yeah, good and, luck with um, that, you know. And then after I, I contacted the, the public affairs office immediately the day that this was announced, which was Wednesday, August 25th, I said, hey, I want to talk to Barb because I knew my column was coming up. And then almost a week later, I heard back and uh, they said, no, we're not making her available for interviews. I hope that's a temporary situation and that um, I'll be able to talk to her about this new role because I think she'll have a lot of influence. And the reason is, that, that Chairman Gensler has appointed several people to his, his inner circle, his senior staff, who, who are going to guide him on a whole range of regulatory topics. And he's appointed these people even before he's hired division directors, such as investment management and trading and markets. So it looks like he'll sort of be the equivalent of a president 
who does most of his governing out of the West Wing with senior staff rather than through the cabinet. So he's not going to depend on cabinet officials to make to make and implement policy, but he's really going to depend on his his staff there near him in the West Wing. Well, maybe he's going to do the equivalent of that at the SEC, and and Barb Roper is right there on that senior staff. Hey, is there is there any precedent for that kind of thing, Mark, with the uh, uh, SEC chairs? SEC chairs always have their own their own personal staff, so to speak. Certainly, chiefs of staff and other positions, at least a handful. But I don't remember in my eleven and a half years of covering the SEC, I can't think of another chair who has put who has who had as big a senior staff as Chairman Gensler has appointed to at the has appointed and and continues to add to. He 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 goes be it certainly goes beyond, I believe, the size of Clayton, you know, his predecessor, Jay Clayton's senior staff. I, I don't have the the Clayton announcement about his staff right in front of me, but it does seem that Gensler's staff is his personal staff is bigger than uh than his predecessors. Why is he doing that, you do you think? Why is he? Well, I, 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 that's hard to say because uh, my interview request. Uh, speculate. Come on. We're paying you. Gensler you get paid to speculate here, buddy. What's that? You get paid oh. to speculate here. You know, come on. <laughs> paid to speculate. Yeah. Well, it, it seems to me that it's a way for him to really influence the bureaucracy at the, at the SEC. The, um, and I, you gave me. Carte Blanchard speculate, uh, Bruce. So that's exactly what I'm doing. I can't be sure. This is this is what he's thinking. But but here's my guess: the SEC has, I believe, 4,200 employees. Many of them have been there for for years, perhaps decades. It's a, it's a strong staff. It's a smart staff. But Gensler is also an active regulator. And and a guy who likes to to push hard and get things done. My guess is that his senior staff is going to help him manage the rest of the SEC staff, and in fact, sort of prod the rest of the SEC staff to get things done in in the way that he he his senior staff is going to help him carry out his vision, so that it's not gummed up by the SEC permanent staff. This is they're, my they're guess. They're there to ride, ride herd a little bit, is what you're saying. Ride herd the, a little bit, sure. Yeah. Because one of the complaints that that people like Barb had when she was on the outside is that that the challenge at the SEC wasn't just to get the commissioners behind an idea, but to get the staff behind it too. You know, at the staff <laughs> right. level, you had resistance right. to a fiduciary rule applying to brokers. You right. had staff resistance to holding investment advisors to um, more than a disclosure standard. Right. And th- th- these were complaints that I he- that I heard. You know, that th- th- there's this this attitude among staff that dis- it's disclosure first, et cetera. Well, now Barb is not just the outsider who's saying, "Hey, we've we've got to get the SEC staff on board here." She's an SEC staffer herself now. And is in a position to more directly influence the uh, the thinking and the activity. What are, what are some of the things or the I know you mentioned Reg BI is going to maybe be beefed up or something or at least enhanced, add some teeth to it. 
What are some of the things that you see happening there or what kind of influence can I call her Barbara Roper? You call her Barb because you must be buddies with her. But what's the uh, what, what do you see as kind of like the things that she will be able to affect change where she'll be able to affect change? Well, first of all, she's already affected change. She was the one who was saying for for months before Chairman Gensler was even confirmed by the Senate that there's no need to overhaul Reg BI. There's no need to rip it up and redo it. But what you but what what the SEC can do is define best interest and um, make clear what mitigating conflicts of interest means for brokers. And then lo and behold, in in Chairman Gensler's first uh, appearance at a congressional hearing after his confirmation, he basically said that's going to be the SEC's approach to Reg BI. They're going to get the most out of Reg BI as it's written through enforcement and examinations. And then if they need to re- revisit it and punch it up, they'll do that. But he didn't say, as, as some advocates, some investor advocates wanted him to say, he didn't say we're going to start over again. He said we're going to go work what we, with what we have and, and make sure it does what it, what it has promised to do. And if it doesn't, we'll, we'll strengthen it. So what you'll see from what I believe you'll see from Barb is the SEC moving to put a definition on best interest. What does best interest really mean when it comes to Reg BI? And also to put some some more uh, detail to the uh, what mitigation of conflicts for brokers means. Uh, and now that she's on on staff, she uh, she can, in, as I said, influence that that direction from the inside. Do you think that she? would have or could have more influence from the outside or the inside. I, I, I'm always, you know, a skeptic. I always think, you know, there's, you know, they brought her inside to, to, so they could basically keep her under wraps. No. On a short leash. No, I, I, I mean, I, I, well, I don't, I don't think that's it. I think that they brought her in to, <laughs> to light a fire mm-hmm. <laughs> under the SEC staff to strengthen Reg BI and to bolster retail investor protection. Uh, I, I think they want her on the, I think they, they, they want her on the inside. She and uh, she's a big fan of Gensler's and I, I, I wouldn't think uh, Gary Gensler would, would want to muffle bar, but he, he would want to amp, amplify her and he's amplifying her by making her part of his staff. Yeah, that's the right answer, Mark. I was just testing you to see if you had it. Good job. <laughs> Hey, this is this is a technically a, a kind of a temporary job, right? She's not like a full time. She's not like a permanent staffer there now. If Gensler's gone. She's probably gone, right? I mean, this Almost is certainly. Appointment but based I don't. Board. Yeah, I don't think Barb would want to be a permanent civil service staffer at the SEC. Right. Uh, that that doesn't. Uh, she never struck me as being in that that mold necessarily. I think this this job as senior advisor to Gensler is is a just a perfect fit for her. Mm-hmm. And right, when he goes, his senior staff will most definitely go. But everything is transitory in Washington, except me. I've been here 29 years now. But administrations come and go, SEC chairs come and go. And um, Gensler will almost, almost certainly, Gensler will most definitely be replaced in uh, 2025 if Democrats don't hold the White House. All right. Any other brilliant insights there from the swamp, Mark? 
I don't, I don't think so. Other than the Washington football team will be improved this year. And uh, they're, um, as far as I'm concerned, they're the favorites to win the NFC East. Wow. There's a big call. Ron Ron Rivera, the head coach is an impressive guy who's really turning things around uh, throughout the organization. Just not on the field, not just on the field. Hey, when are they going to get a nickname? (laughs) Well, as a matter of fact, early next year, according to team officials. All right. So you got information on that too. Good job, Mark. You're you're everywhere. (laughs) You are the swami. Thank you, Jeff. (laughs) All right, Bruce, anything else for the chefinator? No, I mean, I just, I have uh, spoken to Barbara uh, Roper over the years too, not as frequently as Mark, but whenever I needed to kind of better understand or put something in context, particularly around the fiduciary rule, the DOL's fiduciary rule. I mean, she was always uh, a terrific, smart, responsive uh, person to talk to, you know, and authoritative, as Mark is saying. So Gensler just seems like an interesting cat. You know, he has a, he has... Right, Mark. He's he's he has this presence on Twitter. He's been tweeting a lot about a lot of different things, um, and he just yes. seems like an unusual. Actually, he actually has some personality. <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. He does. And so Barb Roper has a lot of personality too. You know, for for someone in that kind well, of. As, as I said in my column, she actually causes republican lawmakers brokerage industry officials and maybe even some moderate to conservative democrats to wince because she is so effective and because she's usually on the other side of all those folks but she does it with a smile she does it with a laugh she's um never says a cross word really uh, about anybody and gensler has that same kind of charisma when you see him in front of uh, lawmakers at hearings and when you when you watch him speaking at uh, at conferences and and different events, uh, he's he's articulate, funny, sharp, uh, extraordinarily sharp. And uh, as I said, a formidable regulator. And um, Barb's going to be a formidable member of his team. But but you don't really think Gensler is managing his own Twitter account, do you? I think that some of those tweets are from him personally. He's not doing okay. them all. I don't see how he could do them all. Yeah. But but some of them seem to seem to reflect his the personality that we see from him in public appearances. Yeah. And um I, I think if you did a if you did a computer um analysis of the language in those tweets compared to the language in his speeches, that there might be a lot of similarities, which means that he probably has a hand in writing both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. he's a fun guy to follow on Twitter. I wonder if Barbara Roper is going to be as active on Twitter now that she's, uh, you know, working for the government. Well, that's a good question. I, she certainly didn't um, say anything about my column. <laughs> uh, and um, I'll have to check. I don't know if she's tweeted since being appointed or not. No, I haven't seen it. I would be I would it, it would surprise me if the SEC would have another person other than the Gensler account on uh, doing social media, you know. Well, yeah. Well, the, the the individual commissioners do their own social media, right. but they're independent. But they're commissioners. They're they're yeah. not they're not staff people. Or uh, right, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I haven't been able to talk to Barb yet. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll talk to her again in twenty twenty five. Then, right? <laughs> well, depending on who the uh, Democrat twenty twenty nine or whatever whatever we'll the see. next one is, who knows? We'll see. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me, guys.
Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, Mark. Mark. All right, everybody, we're back. And we're just going to spend a few minutes here talking to my colleague and cohort, Jeff Benjamin, about a cover story he's got coming out this week. Jeff, why don't you tell everybody what you were working on so furiously in August before you took your uh, little hiatus there? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's a uh, We took a big look at uh, uh, alternative investments, something we, we cover pretty closely, but uh, we wanted to dig deep into it to see where uh, where people are are kind of allocating right now, and who, and who thinks alternatives make sense. And if you're going to allocate into something, another asset class, where where you're taking from, you got to you got to sell something to to buy something. If you're talking about a hundred hundred percent, you got. Uh, and when 60%. you mean alternatives, Jeff, do you mean just what's the gamut of that? Is it real estate funds? Is it long short funds? Is it hedge funds? What do you? Yeah, it. it when we speak of alternatives, we're speaking everything besides traditional long only stocks and bonds. So if you look at the you know traditional standard sixty forty portfolio, sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, we're talking to people about where are you adding alternatives. If you want to add alternatives, you can add them generally to enhance performance or reduce risk. And in this market, a lot of people are looking to reduce risk on the equity side, but enhance performance on the bond side. So it's kind of an interesting scenario out there right now. Obviously, the equity markets are at all-time highs, and they've been you know, continuing to climb for 12 years at least. And some people think that there's a little bit too much risk out there. Jim Paulson, who we just talked to, doesn't see it that way, but you know that's what makes a market. And then on the fixed income side, there's just no yield out there right now. So people are reducing their fixed income allocations by buying more equities or allocating into alternatives and and like you said Bruce alternatives are everything from you know real estate timber um hedge funds which can be long short strategies or market neutral strategies and then there's a whole a whole part of the the story that I wrote which which comes out today well the monday that this comes out it's about liquid alternatives, which are registered mutual funds and ETFs that offer alternative exposure. So there, we we go into a lot of detail about the the where advisors are and should be allocating to alternatives, and it's it's it really is the the money has been flowing into these liquid alt funds. It was for four straight years. It was it was outflows, but this year through the end of August, it was uh, net positive for the first time in, I guess, four years. So money's moving in, even though the markets are high. And I guess people are looking for ways to further diversify their portfolios with alternatives. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned liquid types of alternative investments like mutual funds and ETFs. You know, 10, 15 years ago in the great credit crisis, right, of 2000 mortgage crisis, so many people so many advisors and their clients were burned by investing in illiquid type of investments that had no mm-hmm. real market to support them from the Lehman Brothers principal protected notes to the Puerto Rican bonds to non-traded REITs and, and the like. Mm-hmm. So it's, do you think there's people learn from that experience from 10, 15 years ago? I think people learn from it, but 
there's always new people to come along. So <laughs> there's, you know, we've got people that haven't learned yet. And, and it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the people talk about, you know, when you're t- looking at getting into the traditional types of hedge funds and private equity and stuff like that, you know, people said it's it's kind of one of those things that, you know, if if you can get access to it and you're not a multi-billion dollar institutional investor, you should maybe be asking yourself why you're getting access to it. Because maybe it's a strategy or a fund that nobody else wants to invest in. Because there's just a lot of demand out there for alternatives right now. And it's you you've got to be careful. But it's it's where people are feeling the need to go, which is pretty interesting because Bruce, you know, we've been doing this for a while. And I remember the it was after the financial crisis of 2008 that alter, people started saying, oh, I need to get into alternatives. I need to, well, really, they should have done it before that point. But people get into it afterwards. And that was, you know, when the market was getting ready to go on another tear. And then people said, well, these things are terrible. They're, they're more expensive and they're not performing as well as the long only markets. Right. Well, they're not performing as well because they're designed to kind of hedge out a lot of the risk. <laughs> right. And, right. You know, risk and reward, they run hand in hand. But ever since something happened in 2015, they they just started to gain traction again. And then 2020 and beyond, it's been like, you know, rocket fuel. These things are are uh, are gaining traction. And it it's it seems like at the right time. But my sense is that it's largely I mean, there's on the equity side, there's a lot of people want to diversify or trim their risk exposure. But on the bond side, there's just nothing there for people. As Paulson said, you know, you can hardly make a case for for uh, fixed income right now. Right. It's just, there's nothing there. Right. So. Okay. Good stuff, man. We'll be looking forward to reading that. All right. Jeff, that was another great episode of the investment news podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another episode of the podcast. We want to thank our sponsor, AIX for this episode. We also want to thank our special guest, Jim Paulson, and Mark Sheff. We want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. Of course, you can find the Investment News Podcast at investmentnews.com. We have a spiffed up new uh, design on the website that people should check out too at investmentnews.com. It looks great. You can also find the um, podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave a review on Apple and follow us on Spotify. You can write to Jeff on Twitter and his handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week.